Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Let's consider then how man is viewed from two perspectives. Important for us to get an understanding and the proper perspective. This is the encounter with the one who is generally referred to as the rich, young ruler. It's in all three synoptic gospels, this account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Matthew and uh, Mark give us a couple of points that Luke doesn't have likewise with Luke. But we will look at it generally just from Luke's standpoint here as he gives it to us inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just going to read through it, okay? And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, having done what? Will I inherit eternal life? Now that's the literal translation. We better translate it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The word ruler used in that setting means that he's a ruler of a synagogue. He's a young guy. Other gospels tell us that he's rich, he's young. And to be a ruler of a synagogue means that two things, that he was well respected among the people in his synagogue. And number two, it was generally agreed that he displayed a greater biblical knowledge than everybody else. So he was, he was appointed, elected to be the ruler of his synagogue. So here he is coming to Jesus, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother. And he said, I have kept all these from my youth. Then Jesus, having heard, said to him, Yet one thing is lacking to you. Sell all, as much as you have, and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in the heavens. And come, follow me. Then having seen him, Jesus became sorrowful, saying, how difficultly those having riches shall enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Then those having heard said, then who is able to be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, look. We have left our own things, or we have left all things pertaining to ourselves, and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and eternal life 
in the age that is coming. Two perspectives. First of all, the human perspective. Take note. This passage begins and ends with eternal life. It is a teaching from Jesus on having eternal life. This guy is the example. He asked the question, what must I do to inherit, to obtain, to get eternal life? So let's consider, first of all, the human perspective. And sadly, this is where the masses of the world have always been in the human perspective. And we get this from the scriptures that we're looking at. Looking at First of all, from the human perspective, I have to do something if I'm going to have eternal life. There are so many people, sadly, who look at salvation like this. Okay, Jesus came. He did a very difficult thing. Sent from the Father. He, he lived, was mistreated, and finally went to the cross. And there he died for sins. And he did all that he was supposed to do. And, and he did 90% of it, but I've got to do 10%. I have to do something in order to meet Jesus at that point where he came and said he'd meet me. I have to do something. This is a human perspective. There has, to, there has to be some kind of thing within me. There has to be some sort of empowerment that belongs to me if I'm going to be saved. It is so hard. I don't know. It is so hard for people just to accept the real biblical doctrine of grace. Grace. Anything that you do, I don't care if it's 1% and Jesus does 99%. If it's 1%, that's a work. Works can't save you. This is from a human perspective. He says, I want to live forever. What do I have to do? What must I do? There's something I have to do. If I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to live forever, go to heaven, inherit eternal life. Life that never ends. Into the ages of the ages of the ages, endlessly, I will be alive. What must I do? You read it in stories that you read. You see it on TV episodes that you may watch and hear these people and, and it is generally concluded among the group in, in the story that's told. Of course, it's always a script and, and all, but the, the script reflects the biases of those who write the script. And so here's a guy, uh, he's, he's lived all kinds of things in his life. He's been a He's been an awful sinner and he's never come to Christ. But everybody concludes, you know, he's in a better place. He's dead now and he's gotten away from all this. That's not it. 
That's not it. Because they look back on his life and say, well, you know, he did this and he did that and he did this. And he, yeah, that has to be, that has to count for something. Doesn't count for anything. Those are, you see, human works are evil things. Those are damnable things. Only the works of Christ that are worked through the believer, only those works are the works that, that mean anything. And those are not our works. Those are the works of Christ. So, you know, there just aren't any works that can give to us, bring to us eternal life. But this is number one on the human perspective. I have to do something. Christ did a whole lot for me, but I'm going to have to do something in order to see that what he did is applied to my life. It's up to me now. Jesus did his part. Now I have to do my part. So here's where this guy coming from, okay? Second part of the human perspective. I know all that there is to know about Jesus. If that was true in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, people would walk humbly with Christ and seek in every way to be obedient to the Scriptures. I mean obey the Scriptures. Sometimes... Even those who are in the church hiccup over something that the Bible says. And some sort of ego rises up, this, this pride, this human pride rises up. And so here's the Jesus of the Bible. And we read the gospel accounts and then we read how he sent the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul and the other apostles give to us the New Testament teachings, the New Testament doctrines that are in the Bible, in the infallible Word of God. And people look at those things and they will cherry pick what they don't want and they'll say, you know, this just can't apply to me today. This, this just doesn't apply. Okay, then you don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. I know everything there is to know. He says, good teacher. Jesus said, only God is good. Thus implying in his statement to this young guy, are you calling me God? Which was appropriate to do. Are you coming to me because I am deity? Is this why you call me good? You can read, you can research the Jewish writings. No rabbi was ever referred to as good rabbi. Never were, just rabbi. Because the word that gives us good is a word that references God. Only God is good. Now, he just comes by addressing Jesus as good teacher. You're a good teacher. You're a teacher. Am I God? He didn't ask it that way, but he just told him. He just said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So Jesus lays a, lays a building block here that deity is in his presence. The king of the kingdom of heaven is standing in his presence. Even his disciples are having a hard time with this at this point in time. Good teacher. Then he says he's a teacher. Well, he was a teacher. He, he taught the people. He teaches me by His Holy Spirit. He teaches me by His Word, but I have to tell you something. 
He's far more to me than just a teacher. I know all that there is to know about Jesus. If, if people really, if, listen, okay, if everybody on the church roll of Shiloh Baptist Church really believed that, if they knew everything that there is to know about Jesus, they would be here all the time. They would be learning and they would be teaching. They would be studying and they would be serving. They have a, a rather casual, flippant relationship with the very one who made us and saved us. Do you really know everything that there is to know about Jesus? It's going to be revealed in the course of this passage that he doesn't know Jesus at all. He comes wanting the eternal life, but he comes to a self-made Jesus. He comes to a Jesus about whom he has drawn conclusions within himself, totally disregarding the real Jesus. So that's human perspective number two. Oh, Jesus, he's good. He's good teacher. And he's, he's, he's going to love me right into heaven regardless of what I do in my life, regardless of what my life is like. He's good. He's a teacher. Well, think about that. Because look at this. He further says from the human perspective, I have accomplished myself what God in his word says is impossible for a human being to accomplish. Namely, I've kept the law. Now, Jesus only chooses those parts of the law that have to do with human relationships. He, he doesn't even go to the first four about, about the greatness of Almighty God. You know, like that one that there's, there's the one that says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. People do that all the time. They, they'll speak the name of Jesus as a byword. Or they'll speak Jesus Christ as a byword. Or they'll say, oh God, as a byword, just like it's, it's just part of what they And here's the thing. If you don't tag onto that some biblical principle that is applicable to the deity or some teaching or some promise, if you don't apply to that when you've spoken the name of God, take it, take it in vain. You're just breaking the law of God. There are other ways that we disobey the law, but Jesus decided just to go with these. He knew this guy, and Jesus, knowing all things, knew that this guy could claim that he's never committed adultery, never murdered anybody, never stole anything, never borne false witness, always honored his father and his mother. I have kept these things from my youth. I have accomplished a great thing. Now, Here's the heavenly perspective in response to the human perspective. You cannot be saved by the human perspective. The human perspective condemns people to hell. The wrath of God is on them. But here's the heavenly perspective, okay? Number one, Jesus divinely applies the law. Isn't this interesting? Well, okay, we've already looked at it. Why do you call me good? You know the commandments. Here's a guy wanting to be saved. He's wanting eternal life. 
Jesus doesn't approach him with grace first. He approaches him with the law first. Now think about that. Jesus, God, demands perfect obedience to the law. Grace cannot be applied unless first the law is applied. We have broken God's law. Therefore, we are condemned and we are under a punishment and we are under the penalty of death. Eternal, not just death, eternal death. Suffering in hell forever and ever and ever. Penalty of sin. First thing he does is he applies the law to this young guy. We all have to understand when we come to Christ that the law has crushed us. The law has broken us. The law has condemned us. Who can dare say, even including this guy, who can dare say that they've never in the least way disobeyed a parent? Or in a fleeting moment, wanting something that the other guy has? Who can say anything like that? Who can say that you've never borne false witness? Who hasn't repeated something that you heard that was kind of juicy and sort of, sort of needs to be told, you know, and then it turns out it's not really the truth, but you've done it and you thought it was the truth? It don't matter. It doesn't matter if you thought it was the truth. You bore false witness. I, mean, I could go on and on with this. The law is applied before grace is applied. The law crushes us and forces us to recognize that we are sinners, all of us, every one of us. We're nasty, dirty, vile sinners in the presence of God. There is no perfection in us. God gives to us the law as the standard of human perfection. And every human being but Jesus Christ has failed in the law. All of us. And the law has to be applied. This guy says, from my youth. Well, now that's kind of selective, isn't it? David said, I was conceived in sin. I was a sinner in my mother's womb. I didn't have the ability within my life to obey the law. Because I'm of a fallen race. I'm a, I'm a useless, worthless sinner. The law has condemned me. The law cannot save me. The law slaughters me. Guilty. First thing Jesus does. From heaven's perspective, the law is applied. Thus I'm concluded under sin. I'm sinful. Every human being, but for the virgin-born Christ of God, all who came to be our Savior, all of us are crushed. Every one of us under the law. It's a taskmaster. It's a cruel master. It crushes us. We're unsaved, every one of us. Grace cannot be applied until the law is applied. If the law isn't applied and we're not considered to be guilty, we don't need grace, right? So from heaven's perspective, next, the law is divinely applied. 
Then from heaven's perspective, you must surrender to the sovereign Lord. Jesus, having heard, said to him, you're lacking one thing. Now, he could say this to all of us. All of us fit right here. Jesus could kind of grin and, and, and stroke our, I ain't got no hair to stroke, but if he had to stroke your hair, he'd have to do it over here. <laughs> and say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say you have obeyed that part of the law. Let's just say that you have. There's one thing that you lack. This could be said of all of us. And here it is. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in the heavens. And then follow me. Rich young ruler. He had rank. He had dignity. He had wealth. He was from a fine upstanding family. Obviously, he was inheriting the household of a wealthy father. The people in his synagogue saw him as the best of the best in his synagogue. But you see, in Jesus' day, wealth was tied to heavenly blessing, which in the minds of the Jews secured salvation. This is God's favor. He has lots of money. He has lots of stuff. He therefore must be favored by God. And therefore must surely, being favored by God in such a way, have eternal life. Well, Jesus didn't see it that way, of course. Heaven doesn't see it that way. If you want real treasure, forsake the earthly treasure. Follow me. Give everything that you got from it to the poor. Follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Now treasure in heaven. That's bound to be worth a lot more than treasure on earth, right? Give it away. Sell it, then give it away. You'll have all the treasure in eternal life that you could possibly hope for. And follow me. Follow me. You see, this begs the question of everyone who claims to be a Christian. Are we following Christ? It's not an easy path. It, it, requires, it requires surrender. It, it requires that those things that we thought were so important and made us important have to be completely surrendered. And we have to come to Christ knowing that He is all and in all and nothing else matters. He's going to take care of us. I'm going to come to Christ and I'm going to have a hard time. I'm going to have to give up things that mean a lot to, this, to me in this world. But you see, eternity... <laughs> is a lot longer than just the life you live on earth. Surrender to the sovereign Lord. Now let me go back to a previous point. He thought he knew Jesus. 
People come to Jesus in all kinds of ways, secretly coming to Christ on their own terms. I'm going to come to Christ. I need a little fire insurance. I, 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 I need to know that I'm saved and all this kind of thing. But they haven't come to a sovereign Lord. Jesus knows that. God in heaven knows that. A sovereign Lord. How can I come to Christ who made me, who sustains me, who saves me, who guarantees to me eternal life, who, will, is, who is my king presently and will be my king forever and will carry me out of the and away from <coughs> the first heaven and the first earth into the new heaven and to the new earth and give me that life forever and ever unending? How can I come to him? The great Christ, who we are taught in the Bible is the very one of the Godhead who said, let it be. And it was so. He created everything. The one who said, I have formed you in the womb. The one who made me. The one who wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life. How could I say I'm going to come to him and not acknowledge him as sovereign Lord? That His Word comes before everything else. That His Word, His will, is superior and beyond all other things. Everything else, anything else, doesn't matter. Only my relationship with Christ. Only Christ this means that there are a lot of things going to have to be walked away from. Self-reliance is a disqualification. Do you rely on yourself? Only yourself? Do you rely only on yourself in any way for salvation? Look at this. Having seen him, Jesus became sorrowful. And said, it is so difficult for those who have riches, who are self-sufficient, who see no need of anything. It is so difficult for them to enter into the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This was so opposite of everything that people in Judaism had been taught. So how can this be explained? How, how can this come to balance with true religion, the religion even of the disciples at this point in time? Well, only God can enable you to be saved. Nothing else matters. You can't enable yourself. He says, okay, the disciples say, okay, a rich guy. Well, who's able to be saved then? It's impossible for you to rely on yourself. It's impossible for you to think that things of this world can help you. It's impossible for you to think, think that for you to think that you can do something to inher inherit eternal life. Question: Who's able to be saved? It's impossible to be saved from your perspective. It's impossible for you to save yourself. You can't be saved in and of yourself. 
But God can save you. What is impossible with men is possible with God. It's a God thing. God has to do it. God has to draw us to himself. And then there are things that are genuine when God does it. When we come thinking that we're having to do part of it, it's not a God thing. But when we know that God is doing everything, it's a God thing. God causes us to be born again. God gives to us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. God effectually calls us to himself. Listen, I can stand here at the invitation time and tell you some tear-jerking stories and and talk about people that I know who are in hell and are screaming and crying and carrying on. And, 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 I, and I may project in some psychological way some sort of guilt on, on weaker-minded people and, and force them to come trembling and shame. That's not the effectual call of God. The effectual call of God is that the truth of the gospel is presented, the power, the power of the blessed Word of God that... Sharper than a two-edged sword divides us under the soul from the Spirit and something from heaven. The Holy Spirit from heaven. A power that is beyond and greater than man pulls us, draws us, calls us, causes us to be born again. And in that brokenness, repentance, confession, faith, the dispensing of the Holy Spirit into my life, and now the ability to understand and obey Scripture, which I didn't have before. It's a God thing. It's impossible with men, but it's possible with God. You remember previous to this, a little earlier up there, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus looked at the tax collector... Now, a tax tax collector in those days would have been well-to-do. He wouldn't have been well-respected, but he had a lot of stuff. He'd have had a lot of money. He got a percentage of everything that was paid in taxes, and he he could set his own percentage. And that would lead him into a life of, of fornication and, and a life of, of thievery and, and conspiracy and all kind of bad stuff. But at the time of prayer, when the, atone, when, the, when the offering, the sacrifice was made, this guy snapped. God broke him. And he fell on, he fell on his, wouldn't even look up. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, this guy's going to go to his house justified. Because nothing in his life, all the stuff he's ever collected, all the money, that has all become meaningless to him. The weight and burden of sin and the slaughter of the law have come down upon him. And he has recognized that there is nothing within himself that can save himself. He only can call on the propitiation that God makes in behalf of sinners. God be appeased for me, the sinner. God be propitiated. God, when you look at the sacrifice, see it as that which I need. Because the sacrifice is perfect and I'm not. 
The sacrifice takes sin away from the sinner. And my sin needs to be projected upon the sacrifice. It's impossible with men to save themselves, but only God can save you. It's only possible with God. It's not possible in any other way. Totally submitted to God. And finally, abandoning ourselves. Self-abandonment is required. Look at this. Then Peter said, hey, we've left all of our stuff. Everything. We've left everybody, everything, and followed you. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that there is no one who has left his house, wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and eternal life in the age that is coming. Now what does he, what does he mean by that? Jesus says, don't you know, don't you know that heaven understands what you've done? Knows your heart. You've come to me and I'm going to make your family better. You've abandoned it, but I'm going to give you something back within your life that was better than it's ever been. You're going to have peace and joy and reconciliation in this life. You're going to walk with God and the things that matter have become preeminent in your life. And now that's going to spill over into your family life. And your family is going to recognize those things. And even your family is going to be happier. Not just that, but you'll have eternal life in the age that is coming. You have to abandon yourself. May I say that when we truly come to Christ... There are so many things right off the top of our heads that we know we have to sacrifice. We have to abandon them. We come to Christ and, and we just abandon those things. And we don't realize at the moment, we don't realize at the moment that there are so many other import, unimportant things in our lives that need to be abandoned. We don't always recognize those things immediately. I speak from experience. You come to Christ, you've abandoned yourself, you've, 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 you've left the life that you had, the security that you had, family, even, even types of family relationships that you had, friendships that you had. But then as you begin this path of life, you're on your way, you're on your way to eternal life and God has granted it to you. And along the way, you're going to realize that there are other things in your life that you need to abandon. You don't realize it at first, but it happens in the path of growing in Christ. It's kind of like, you know, we, we went to Tennessee a few weeks ago, the retreat, and I had Google Maps on, and there's a woman in there that talks to you. And she'll say, turn right in a thousand feet. Now stay on this road for so many miles. If you use ways, she'll tell you, hey, there's a cop up ahead. That's always good. Or there's a car stalled on the side of the road. 
But if you want to blow that woman's mind, take an exit and go to McDonald's. She'll say, reconfiguring, re rerouting. Oh, let me think about this. Wait a minute. You got to do a U-turn, man. Go ahead. Turn left. Turn around. Turn left. Find the first place to do a U-turn. You know. Well, thank God in heaven, that's the way the Holy Spirit is in our lives, like a woman from ways. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not a woman. But let me tell you, sometimes we foolishly take an exit and God will thump us on the nose and say, you got to get back on the road, man. And you do. You abandon what you thought was important. Life is filled with those kinds of things. More and more things become less and less important. That's when you know that Christ is sovereign in your life. When something gets in the way of serving Christ, when something gets in the way of church life, listen, Christ loved the church and gave His life for her. Anything that gets in that way is a bad exit. And if you are for real, the Holy Spirit of God will tug at you. Get back on the road, man. And if you're for real, you will. And you realize now, you know, what I thought was good at that exit ain't so good after all. I just don't need it anymore. And you abandon it. That is the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this big debate that nauseates me about the sovereignty of Jesus. I have actually heard people say, well, I came to Christ as Savior, but I didn't come to Him as Lord. Oh, give me a break. How in the world can a less than sovereign Lord draw you to salvation? What was He, what was he a Savior of? Well, he's sovereign over this and this, but I haven't let him be sovereign over this and this. Listen, those things will be corrected in the lives of true believers because he is sovereign. He's coming again. I'm like the old bumper sticker I saw back in the 70s in the days of that book, Late Great Planet Earth. Bumper stickers there. Jesus is coming again, and boy, is he mad. And, he, you know, it's going to be a different Christ than it was who died on the cross. Why would I not acknowledge Him as Lord Jesus? The question was answered about eternal life by none other than Jesus Himself. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they will believe on you, the true and living God, and that they will believe on Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is such a short statement with such a deep meaning. Believe on Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, the Christ of God, the manifestation of God in this world who came to seek and save those who were lost, the sinners who were lost.
To believe in Him is to believe what the Bible says about Him. That He is very God of very God. How could I dare think that I could pick and choose how I want to obey? On what days I will obey and what days I won't. What parts of the Scripture I can apply to my life and what parts of the Scripture I will not. He is sovereign if He is Savior. Period. That's what he says to this rich young ruler. You call me God by saying I'm good. Then give away everything else and follow me. That's your eternal life. There it is. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he came into this world to save sinners. If you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on Him to save you, God will save you. Only God can draw you into that. The invitation is open for you when we stand and sing in a moment. And God calls you to His salvation. You'll know it. You'll know it. You come. We'll take care of all the details. If that's what God wants in your life, you come to be saved. If the Lord calls you into the membership of this church, you come. We'll take care of all those details. If this is where God wants you to serve Christ, you come. You come. Father in heaven, bless this invitation. It belongs to you. Thank you for the opportunity of extending it. And for how by grace... You save us. Speak to our hearts as you see fit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Would you come?